I didn't go to college. And all the kids, because I was one of those cool kids in school, mm-hmm. all, all the nerdy kids were coming back from college. I was 22 years old, working at Red Lobster, serving them shrimp, and I started to realize, maybe I'm the idiot. Damon John grew up in Queens, New York. He wasn't the best student. He would later be diagnosed with dyslexia. But he did have an eye for fashion and a talent for connecting with people. Today, you'll know him as one of the sharks on Shark Tank, a popular show on ABC and CNBC where entrepreneurs pitch their companies to a superstar panel of investors. That show's in its ninth season. Contestants want not just his money, but perhaps more important, Damon John's advice and unique connections. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and you're listening to the Fort Knox Podcast, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I do this weekly, bringing you the highest achievers. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Apple's podcast app is the most popular way to tune in, but Overcast, Stitcher, Google Play, and more. Mainly, I just want you to subscribe so we can keep this thing going automatically. Damon John is also out with a new book this month, Rise and Grind, Analyzing the Key Habits of Successful People. He sat down with me to tell me how he rose from sewing clothes in his mother's house to becoming an investor and TV star and what he's learning now. Here's Damon John. Um, A good portion of my time is taken up with these companies that I uh, am fortunate enough to be able to invest in on Shark Tank. Um, it's our real money, uh, it's our real time, energy, and our staff behind it. So I have a lot of resources going towards there. Um, but, you know, if, if you look at the Damon John brand, it's split in a couple of ways. Um, number one, there's the Damon John brand itself that, that is somebody who is an advisor, a consultant to companies, creating content and curriculums. Uh, and that, the content and curriculums can vary everywhere from free on Facebook to a $20 new book, whether it's, you know, my, my last book was Power Broke, or then it's one of my um, success formulas that are out in the market and people see it, all the way up to uh, Damon on Demand, which is an interactive curriculum. And of course, I do. I do public speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the Damon John brand. Uh, the other part of the Damon John brand is the Damon John brand you know from television. So, you know, whether I'm the face of uh, Shopify or a financial instrument, ABC, so then you have the intellectual property. Um, and then, then you have the back end, you have the business side, the business side that I still have a good amount of companies, FUBU, Kuji, a lot of other brands that some are doing good, some are not. I'm trying to licensing some, trying to move some into new territories. Mm-hmm. I'm developing new brands um, such as uh, uh, I just la- helped launch a brand with Catherine Zeta-Jones, a home brand, um, and that seems to be going quite well. And um, how, other did that, how did that link up happen? You, and Catherine? Uh, you know, we just happened to meet each other, and she told me that she wanted to, um, well, she basically showed me a book of almost 20 years of designs that she was drawing and putting together. And um, her parents come from um, very humble beginnings. Dad, uh, I think, owned a candy factory. and mom was a seamstress. Mm-hmm. And um, she had it in her blood. And, I, uh, and she said she wanted to do a brand. And I honestly, I'm approached by every celebrity in the world. <laughs> Everybody, as soon as they get on one reality show or they got a 1,000 likes on one Instagram, they're ready for a brand. Right. So uh, respecting her work and who she is is one of the mo- notable faces on the planet. I still didn't wasn't interested. And I said to her, I said, I forgot. I don't even know the real number. I hear all these numbers of two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars for the T-Mobile campaign. Right. I said, so you can probably go out and make ten, twenty, thirty million dollars doing something this year that you already known for, 
or we can sit in factories for the next five, six years and do sketches and drawings, and maybe we'll split two or three million. But you know, and she was like, I can't wait to do that. I, you know, so, so you know, you know, I, you know, I developed a friendship with her, and um, she's she's the CEO. I'm just some. I just work here. I just <laughs> I just when she comes to me for advice, I give her advice on direction. Um, and then I had to open up a new uh, uh, another brand. And this is my first foray into, say, real estate. I've opened up something called Blueprint & Co. Mm -hmm. um, it is a co-working shared space, but for, like, fellow sharks, people who are established in business, people who may have 100 people working for them uh, in Jersey, but they need four people here, you know, um, or somebody who is... Um, a patent attorney, and they they're you know they have one two people in their office, but they want to be around like-minded people. It's not for startups, it's not for anybody looking for funding, and I even have my own people there. So mm -hmm. that's some of the things I'm doing. Uh, <laughs> it takes up a lot of time. I try to I try to cut it all up, um, but um, I'm a pretty busy guy. So what drives you? When you talk about the power of broke, yeah, um, it, it can't be fear that you're going to go broke again. That's no, driving. Not anymore. Not anymore. So not what anymore. is it? Well, you know, it's fascinating. I do, I do what I love, but you know, if you look at it, there's so many different ways to f fulfill myself. Um, number one, being on a show that I never thought would would uh, air, you know, air more than five or six times and be and be <laughs> absolutely gone. Being on that show, there's a couple of things. Number one, I'm inspired because I see people walking onto that show who have absolutely nothing remind me of me actually were in worse situations than myself and they're succeeding uh the fellow sharks up there they have a they we all have a different way of thinking and i'm learning from it if i wasn't on that show i still would be doing the business the same way we see the retailers crashing mm -hmm. i'd be doing the business the same way let's make a shirt and let's hopefully sell it to a store and if the store buys it maybe somebody will walk by and purchase it and it'll magically fly off the shelf um and i see a lot of my colleagues you know falling by the wayside uh doing business like that so first of all i'm the only i'm the person who learns the most off a of shark tank than anybody in the world uh, okay. number one number two is it's heightened my um my intellectual property you know i became an ambassador for president obama in the white house i traveled the world i went to kenya with uh, with with obama i went to cuba with obama i was the first person to hold a public forum um a town hall meeting in cuba where they were able to speak openly about their concerns and you know not necessarily be worried about the uh, you know the repercussions of that um so i think that it's taking me around the world and then you know I get to see people of color, minorities, females, and whatever the case is, and look at me and say, you know, because you did it, I've tried to do it, and I can do it, and there's nobody in our way. You know, because a lot of people don't see general uh, individuals like you and I. Yeah. You know, and you and I know there's many more individuals like you and I that never get in front of the camera nobody talks about because we always see these negative images. So I feel that yeah. it, when I'm, because I'm on Shark Tank, people look at me as a man. That's it. Mm. You know, no, forget even a man. They look at me as a business person. That's it. And I think that somehow, hopefully, the next Steve Jobs or female <laughs> or male is in their little pajamas eating, uh, eating some cereal and they're watching the show and they're going to grow up and help change the world. So 1992, take me back. Yeah. You are, I mean, you're into your 20s at that point. Yeah, I'm 22 at that time, 22 or 23. What do you think... Where do you think your life is headed, pre-FUBU? So, to add some color to that, I started selling FUBU in 89 on the streets of Queens, and I closed it down three times till 92 because I didn't mm. have a name on it. I was just selling hats. Okay. All right, and I closed it down three times in 92 because I ran out of money. 
So night Damon John 1992. Now all of a sudden, pre-Fubu goes, you know, I got these hats around, and my friends come around and say, man, everybody keeps asking about it. Uh, you know what? I didn't go to college. Uh, most of my friends are dead or in jail um, because they were drug dealers, and that's a path that I would never go down. Why not? Why wouldn't I go down a path? Well, first of all, you know, I, I got arrested one time. I was in a car, and there were two guns in the car. Um, and one guy, and first of all, my friend who had the two guns, one was broken. <laughs> so I don't know why he's carrying that around. And right. he put it under the seat. And once you put it on the seat, everybody owns it. And I had to go to the precinct that night. And I remember the look on my mother's face when she had to come get me out of that precinct. I never wanted to ever see that pain on her face again. She didn't cry. But I knew that I hurt the most special person in my life. Um, and I just wasn't, I wasn't somebody who felt that, you know, listen, I've always been a numbers person. And I realized, listen, you sell drugs. After 10 years, by the time you pay off your lawyers and you're only out for four years because you keep going back to jail, you might as well work at McDonald's. Yeah. So I just wanted peace of mind. Right? Um, but I was also embarrassed. I didn't go to college. And all the kids, because I was one of those cool kids in school, mm -hmm. all, all the nerdy kids were coming back from college. I was 22 years old, working a Red Lobster, serving them shrimp, and I started to realize, maybe I'm the idiot. Hmm. You know? Right. Um, so then I started to work on this passion project because I just loved, I loved clothing and I loved music. And I never realized I could put them together. Um, and I started looking at that. It started to give me purpose. It started to make me feel like, Hey, I can go to the video set, and I got a reason to be on the video set. I was begging to get on there, and now I'm seeing the most amazing artists, you know, um, perform their songs. Oh, I, I have a reason to talk to a girl. Hey, you want to buy this shirt? You <laughs> know, and I started to find purpose. I wanted to wear it. I want to look cool in it. And I find I started to find a purpose was just purely a hobby. And there had been a gap, I think, in in black fashion right around that time, right? Because there was kind of the Dapper Dan era, yeah. Where you know, which I guess was also in New York, where there was kind of this entrepreneurial, let me put together a fashion that speaks to the culture. But then we went through like Coca-Cola shirts and triple fat goose jackets and stuff that was, you know, for us, but by other people. Other people. Right. And then you come up with FUBU at a time when black consciousness rap is out, right? You got right. the medallions that we're, I remember wearing my medallion yeah, in the late yeah, 80s, yeah. early 90s. Like, what influenced you to brand that way when you did, where it wasn't just you were putting some hats together, there was a, a message Meaning. behind it. So it really was that I started to hear that all the companies out in the market really didn't respect, it wasn't just African American, African Americans, rappers, inner city kids, and it was all these companies I heard, and knowing them now, they're not stupid enough to say that about their customer base, but there was a boot company at the time, not owned by the same people that did say something in the New York Times, said, we don't sell our boots to drug dealers. They would later go on and put out a campaign that said, give racism the boot, because they saw their <laughs> numbers go tank. Huh. But I said at that time, who's ever going to respect this world? I love this world. In this world, I didn't, I didn't create it for a color, so I never did that for a color. It's a, it is a culture that has started from African Americans, but I wasn't going to be prejudiced just like the boot company. Hmm. So back then, if we were hip-hop kids, the third base would have came and said, I want to wear your stuff, or the Beastie Boys would I wear my stuff. I, don't, I wouldn't have cared about the color of their skin. The Beastie Boys are more crazy than anybody else is, <laughs> right? So I started creating and saying, who's going to love this? Who's going to be able... 
I want to be able to talk to the design, my customer, and we can talk about the same music videos, that, that funny voice, uh, new champion uh, named Mike Tyson. I want to talk to you about a Spike Lee film, that guy with the ball head with the shorts who was dunking the ball. I want to talk to you about our world. You don't even know what a Diddy is, half those people at that time. And, and, and that's what I created it for. Uh, I created it for a culture. And actually, the first places that purchased it, because I think I put an a, a ad in the right on magazine, were Japan and Seattle, Washington. The huh. kids in Seattle, Washington, that like to wear grunge and the CBGB shirts and all that type of stuff. Back then, yeah, I mean, Seattle might as well have been on a different planet. Right? <laughs> exactly. There's yeah. no internet. You know, the radio stations were the gateways to figuring out what music was. So it could take years yeah. for a song to move across 100%. the country. There was right? a couple. Of, there was a couple of pockets that. It was D.C., <laughs> you know, Seattle, and two other three places. Louisiana, you go, what are these people? They, you know, <laughs> no. Um, was L.L. the first musician to really embrace the FUBU brand and put you out front and center? No. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of people ask me that often yeah. who, to say, how do I get a big celebrity like L.L.? Well... First of all, you have to influence the people that he's being influenced by, which are usually the raw people in the streets. Right. Right? So I did a couple of things. Number one, I would go to the guys who and the girls who were really hip in the streets. I also made sure I made a bunch of six X's so I could put on the big African-American or white or black bodyguards all around because they didn't have an option for clothes. They had the big white T-shirts or black T-shirts made by Rochester Big and Tall. <laughs> so instead of some cool kid wearing my shirt once, these guys were wearing nine. Nine, ten times, and they were just in LL's face. They were the people in front of the club saying, get out of here. So it started to spread that way. The first couple of people that wore it were uh, 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 artists named Miss Jones and Moni Love. Moni Love. Moni Love. Sadat yeah, um, yeah. um, X in Brand Nubian. Oh, um, yeah. You know, and I started placing it on um, uh, Old Dirty Bastard and stuff like that. And by the time it got around to LL, he heard about it already. Oh, you yeah. Know? So, um you gotta you, you, you gotta you gotta go to the people around first yeah. so that the LLs of the world go, hey, who's mine? <laughs> you know what I mean? Were you still sewing by hand yeah. all through that period? Yeah, I sewed by hand from uh, eighty nine to ninety uh, six. Seven years. Yeah. Was that just you, or did you have a couple of other? No, people I, 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 well, it was just me from '89 to '93, okay. and then at that time, I turned my house into a factory. I, I hired seamstresses, and we had a cutting room and everything else. So, you know, up till about '93, '96, I was employing people. How did you know how to make that leap from? I mean, it was that first uh, hundred thousand dollar mortgage, right? That yeah, your yeah. that your mom took out on the house sure. to help get you started in '92. But then you had to make that leap to doing it again and really turning the house into a production facility. How do you do well, that? Well, you know, well, so the way that it goes is that when 92 when I started, I made that for, that purchase with my mother, you know, get, taking $100,000 out of the home, which was only worth 75, so I don't, still don't know how she got the money. <laughs> um, we came back from the trade show and we had $300,000 in orders. My mother wouldn't just gave me $100,000. Right, right, right. So we lever I asked her, can we leverage the house against the orders? I'd make the clothes, put it back in. So now all of a sudden I have the factory up and running six months or a year, whatever the case is, and I turn around and I'm, I'm out of all my money. Um, and I was out of the money because I didn't have any financial intelligence. So mm. I was you know, paying for raw goods 90 days ahead of time, paying for the factory, the shipping, the billing, and, and waiting for my customers to pay me if they paid me. Mm. Right? So all of a sudden I was in trouble. Um, and it was, it was that fear that power broke, being in trouble, that made us take out an ad in the in, in the. Uh, I forgot what newspaper saying million dollars in orders and we need financing. 
And out of that, 33 people called, 30 of them were loan sharks. Um, but three of them were real structured companies. One was Samsung's, uh, Samsung's textile division. Wow. And we ended up doing a deal with them. Now, if I didn't do the deal with Samsung, I would have lost everything. And you, I would have never been sitting here with you in, in this circumstance. So Samsung, this is the 90s, yeah. right? Samsung is not the Samsung that we know of today. It is the Samsung you know of today, but not currently because they had at that time, they had a bunch of divisions, right? Nuclear right. reactors, cars, and they still do. And they and they still do. But they weren't a global brand. They were. They were seeking to be global. They were still yeah. doing eighty billion, right? Yeah. But but they weren't in the area the way we know them now of um, uh, devices. I think we would have known them then for televisions, right? Right. But because and this is how they got into this market. They kept looking at all the rising stars, and they would say, "I'm not going to develop it myself. Let me wait till it gets to this area." And then if I can add and be a strategic partner, and, and that's what I see with most corporations who are successful. When I see other ones who are like a Kodak or something else like that who go, no, we only have our own proprietary products and we don't want to acquire and or whatever with anybody else and they think that they're special, I, I start to see them go by the wayside and, and Samsung was smart enough and they still are today to be smart enough to invest in things after they see somebody with a little bit of spark. Tell me about the transition through the 90s into 2000. Um, you know, the consciousness movement sort of hits its peak. Yeah. And with it, the FUBU brand sort of hits its peak mm -hmm. as well. Sure. How do you continue to, does, does that shock you or do you see it coming? Have you diversified into something else? Yeah. What did you do? So, um, very good question. Wasn't shocking at all because if, as I said, I was always a numbers person. If you look at history, 99.9% .9 of fashion brands last five to seven years. Yeah. Then, then they pretty much go away and they come back 20 years later. You, ha you do have some unicorns, uh, you know, maybe Gucci, Louis Vuitton, and Nike. But whether you look at Coach or Benetton or, you know, United Colors of Benetton or Alessé or Kangol or any of them, they have come and gone. Mm -hmm. I expected it to come and go because... I saw that not only was uh, my market, um, you know, a market that was being overloaded with everybody now at this point, and it already had lasted from 1992 to three to around 2000. We we're already, you know, gonna gonna see a, a slowdown. So we went out and acquired a bunch of different other brands because um, at that time I realized what my skill set was. It wasn't that I was the greatest designer in the world. I mean, how much does it take to put an O5 or an FB on your shirt? Right? I don't know. I mean, you thought of it. Pretty easy. Trust me. <laughs> Try it. It'll look good. Right. Um, so, but we acquired some brands. So what was your strength then? Marketing. If it wasn't that. Marketing. Marketing. Creating relationships with uh, influencers and artists. And now that I had a relationship with Samsung, I also had the ability to deliver it and have a pipeline of distribution, a trusted line of distribution, financing, and be able to take back the goods if they don't work. Hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. um, so now back office, as we would say in the business. So now and then we went and acquired other brands, Kuji, uh, and we tried a lot of brands. We tried to bring Kappa, uh, the soccer brand, over here to the United States. Uh, we thought soccer would take, you know, you know, get some traction in the United States. It didn't. Had to give that license up. Ted Baker, we brought it over here first, um, but you know, the Ted Baker family wanted to um, do more of a brick and mortar. And the way as we know brick and mortar today, we didn't see brick and mortar was the place that we wanted to go. And then we acquired a brand called Kuji, a, a brand that was known as hip hop, but maybe in the 80s and early 90s with Biggie Smalls and a lot of people wearing it. And we noticed nobody was talking about it. And it was only pretty much ugly sweaters. And we can reinterpret it and make it sweater jeans, sweatsuits, things of that nature. So we started to do really well with Kuji. 
Um, so basically, we acquired about 12 brands, two or three hit. Others, uh, either we lost money on or whatever, but you only need one hit. And that's when I started to open up the portfolio for acquisitions of other things because we had a pipeline. Mm -hmm. if, you know, and then I wanted to take on more real estate. If I'm going to Macy's and I have Kooji and FUBU, can I have something in the cosmetics aisle? Can I have something in the electronics aisle? Because you, know, you already know me. I'm a vendor of record. We have a trusted relationship. I wasn't getting any of those opportunities because people would only think of me as the clothing guy and the urban clothing guy. And right I, around that time, I get a call. Mark Burnett calls. And he says, you want to be on Shark Tank. Why did he call you? At that time, I started to feel like there was a need to give back. I, um, I had uh, uh, my, my wife at the time and I had separated. Um, I went through all the highs and lows of the, you know, you know, going from poor to having money to fake friends to what's going on in life. Nine cars, you only needed one. You know, <laughs> I can't drive nine at the same time. You know, running around and partying, and I and I at that time, um, you know, I, I uh, we separated, and she had basically said to me, and a couple other people said to me, you know, you're a person that is in a very fortunate position, and you do like to share information. Why don't you start writing books and giving people the insight because uh, people out there don't know about entrepreneurship, and I don't, and, and can you, you know, and, and and you know, listen, I could have named Fubu. Damon John brand, I can't say it would have went anywhere, but I named it because I wanted to be part of a community. So then I started writing a book, Display of Power, how we both have the same engine underneath our hood. What Are you going to tap into that power? I've always been a person that's been wanting to share the information. So then I started going to Donnie Deutsch and CNBC, MSNBC, and to promote it. And that's where Mark Burnett saw me. Uh, and he describes Shark Tank to you as what? Well, first his team calls me. Um, they describe it to me as a show where um, exactly what it is. Investors are, are uh, investing and, you know, um, and it's real entrepreneurs, your real money. And then I go, okay, whatever. And they send me over a copy of the show from, from Japan, from, from London, from uh, London, London okay. and Japan, either one, Dragon's Den. And I look at it and I go, wow, this is interesting. I can get more companies in my portfolio than I need. You know, I'm not thinking when I'm looking at it, I'm not thinking about the human factor. I'm not thinking about the people in it and, and the real reason we invest. I'm going, I can get some good deals now, <laughs> right now. You know, I don't need to go around the venture world and have nine meetings. There's going to be 100 people in front of me, and I can pick. And, and that's the main reason that I, I did the show initially. First season, moderately successful. First season, not successful at all not at in all. regards to investments because, you know, the Sharks, I, I'm going to speak for myself, but I'm sure the other ones as well. We didn't know what to expect, right? So you had poor deal flow. Um, we you also, just didn't have we, enough deals to be able to pick the, the great ones well, out. Ca well, casting agents at the time were casting agents, right? So they're, they're, they're interviewing somebody because they're a great character and they think the business is going well. They don't know the right questions to ask. They don't know, you know, to ask somebody, you know, do you own the trademark? You know, have you, you know, have you set up, are you a vendor of record? They wouldn't know. But of course, now every year after that, watching us 200 pitches a year, they get very, very smart and they, you know, like America has. So they couldn't find really great talent. Also, people with real companies were going, I'm not going on any stupid show. To They didn't know what the show was. They were right. saying, well, are they cleaning shark tanks? <laughs> when do you get the money? You know, right. do I have to eat shark every day? Like, they had no idea. Is this like the small business version of payday lending? You know, exactly. Am I going on there because I'm desperate? Correct. So right. they didn't know. And then on our side, when we had these people come in, we gave them all the money, but we didn't realize, wait a minute, we need a team here to talk to them every day because 
they're depending on us way more than for capital, you mm -hmm. know? So uh, every year, the sharks and the contestants and everybody have gotten a little smarter and then the you, you and then and then honestly, a real company's not gonna on Shark Tank. They're gonna have the Oprah effect for a second, but they're not gonna really get into their rhythm until two, three, four years in because it's a real business, and, and that's when you start to see the real, real, the real uh, uh, superstars come out four or five years in. What's been the best example of that that you've seen from your one of the companies you've invested in? My company, well, uh, uh, so many. So there's uh, Bomba Socks. They they started off doing 800,000. They think they're going to hit 50 million uh, this year. What did you see in that company? Because you, you think socks, okay. People yeah. wear socks. Yeah. Lots of people sell socks. Sure. Why invest in a sock? No, not only that, I go, at first I said, first of all, I have a warehouse full of socks. Socks. Second of all, you can't tell whose sock you're wearing if it's usually on a shoe or pants. So my whole concept of branding and ideas is I'm not going to get too many rappers to run around in a video with their shoes off, right? So I definitely can't even help in that area, right? I like sock puppets, but that's not probably not going to do anything for us. But then I realized the same exact reason I said that I, I, I was getting trained on the show on how to run business is that these, these kids were, first of all, every sock you buy, they were giving back. They would give, they would, every sock you buy, they were giving a pair to the homeless shelters because the care for their feet are the biggest challenges. Second of all, totally online. To they knew who their customer was. They knew why their customer didn't buy this, would buy this, and would want to buy this. And this, there's a, there was a story behind it. And then I didn't realize at the time socks were actually becoming super popular. I didn't know. There are, there are people who have... 100, 200 pairs of socks. There are. You know? People wearing mismatched socks. All, is a all thing kind now. of stuff. And, and you, again, yeah. this educated me. So I did the deal not thinking about this, what it was going to be, and bang. You know, all the ones that are my most successful are total shock. <laughs> it's a total shock. I also did this one called Al Bubba Baker's Boneless Ribs. I was going to ask you about the Boneless Ribs. I said he I was a good salesman. Exactly. And, and it goes back to the exact same thing to the people. He knew about ribs too. You he tell. knew ribs. You know, he's a big hulking guy. Yep. And he's uh, exactly he, the sort of guy who you want to buy ribs from. He's a huge guy, right? And you I can't said, even say ribs. You got to no, say ribs. Well, he was a, he was <laughs> NFL Rookie of the Year, yeah. I think, in '76 or something like that. And I, I always tell the story about I was seeing him limping one day, and I said, "Tell me what happened. Was it a Super Bowl or like you know what happened? Like, tell me about the play that happened." He said, "Yeah." I was in a barbecue contest and I was pulling a brisket out and I was walking across the lawn and I stepped in a rabbit hole. The man played NFL, you know, for all those years and he hurt himself in a rabbit hole with a brisket. <laughs> He's dedicated to barbecue. Yeah. You know, so yeah. it, it, and it's stories like that, that that make me excited to want to call and talk to him all the time and we figure out ways to, um, to, to, to make the company hopefully successful. Tell me about the overcoming. You've talked about dyslexia, which you dealt with growing up, but didn't really have it diagnosed until you were already grown. Right. Um, you, listen, you know, um, I never realized that I was dyslexic. I knew that reading was a challenge to me. Um, but when I did uh, figure out that I was dyslexic and then went online and started to look at it, I understood then where it was powerful for me, and I wanted people to realize and understand um, about dyslexia because, you know, 20% of the world is dyslexic. There is no difference in gender or color. You know, actually reading is, uh, reading is fairly new to us. We've been looking at hieroglyphics for millions of years. Uh, mm -hmm. Reading is fairly new to, to the human species. But I also noticed that a lot of kids were suffering in school 
and parents were suffering because they were um, they were thinking dyslexia was something different. And if you look at about the 11 sharks we have, if you look at all the guests, eight of us are dyslexic out of the 11. Um, you look at, uh, you know, so many notable people are, you know, Einstein, who we can say is one of the most brilliant men uh, that we, you know, uh, that we know it was dyslexic. I wanted to share this because so many families are suffering with it because if a kid is dyslexic, um, they're ashamed to raise their hand, keep raising their hand in school, and they would be deemed, you know, stupid by the other kids. Mm -hmm. But they could be somebody who's brilliant, and I think that um, a lot of them sometimes, uh, you know, may turn to the wrong way of life because other people who may not have those great support systems may say, I don't care if you read, come over here in this corner and help make some money with me. Wow. Um, so I just want to bring in people's uh, attention. That sounds like part of the way that you adapted growing up is you, you were a numbers person. It made, me, it made me, you know, listen, it, it was a cheat, right? It made me do other things. You know, if when I had school, I had the ability to, to work one week and go to school the next because of something called co-op program, and I got a credit for it. And I actually went, it was a messenger for First Boston. Uh, you know, another VC bank, right? That's, mm -hmm. you know, oddly enough. But if I wasn't, uh, you know, trying to escape school, I would have just been maybe wanting to be in sports, maybe wanting to hang out in school all day. Every time I'd read a book, I'd have to read three, four times because I'd absorb it a different way. Every time I'd read something and I didn't get it, I'd go out and physically try to do it. And that's half the, that's half the battle with people who want to be entrepreneurs. Get up and do it. <laughs> um, so, you know, it just, it just made me, uh, you know, operate a little differently. What's the role of publishing of books in your business, whether it's branding Damon John or uh, representing your businesses? What does it do for you? Well, initially I did it because I wanted to go out and I, I wanted to start educating people. Before Shark Tank came around, I, I, I had already had a book out. And the reason why I did the book is because I, I had wanted um, to transition into somebody who would be a broadcaster, like a news person, but more like a Charlie King or somebody like that, who would interview interesting subjects and people like you do and bring it to, and bring it to the world. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I wrote the first book because I wanted people to know my thesis, my life, and what I thought so that in the event that they were going to follow me in whatever way, they would know my beliefs. And that was my first book. Uh, the second book was about two, three years into Shark Tank, and I started to realize that people thought that uh, you know their numbers and everything else mattered when it was really them because they're a brand themselves. And then the final one at that time, which is The Power of Broke, I realized that so, too many people are listening to how so forth got offered a million, two million, twenty million dollars, and you can't do it without any money. And and it was it was overwhelming to me how many people were not living their dreams because somebody else sold them a fear that you need a hundred thousand, five hundred thousand, and it was absolutely crap. Um, and I wanted and 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 too many people out taking advantage of people saying you need a fifty thousand dollar website. You know, why don't you let me uh, sell that house for you? you if you pay me $10,000 a month, and you know, when you see people that are eager about their idea or concept, I see them and, and they're almost begging for somebody to steal them. Mm. Steal the idea or steal the, the or, or, or take, take their money. Yeah, 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 they're like, no, no, but if you do this, and you know, the real con men and women, they work really hard to convince you that you're weak and you need. They go, no, nah, <laughs> I can't take it. I mean, you, you've seen it, the, the Madoff story where he was like, yeah. I'm sorry, I can't touch anything that low. And they were like, all right, I'll give you $600 million. <sighs> All right, I'll try to find some time. That's, that's, that really exists. Yeah.
Yeah. So you wanted to show people that they could do what they wanted to do with a minimal amount of funds and just being smart. Exactly. Or you can fail and recover because you lost a minimal amount of funds. Mm. Okay. Like if you fail, you know, and, and you can recover from it in a year, I, I recovered from failing at FUBU three times. Mm. But if you go out and everybody's told you, because you're so busy looking at Instagram and everybody's picture on Instagram is always great. They're always in a Ferrari, right? Right. If you do it like that, you're not recovering for 7, 10, 15, 20 years. You may lose your marriage, sell your kids a, a, a college account, and you not go to college yourself. So, uh, that you know. How did you learn to handle being underestimated? Because I, you know, I watch early Shark Tank episodes yeah, we air them on CNBC at night. Sure. And I know half of these people don't really know who Damon John is. It's sure. like, you should really be listening to Damon John about this idea, yeah. but you're too busy looking over at Mark or over, right? Um, how did you, it, you were probably already used to that sure. from earlier experience. How? Um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that, and I've never been asked, I think that it's, you know, listen, I, I, I have a great mother, right, who raised me to make me think that I wasn't better than anybody. Uh, but if I applied myself, I was just as good and I could be better than people. Um, and it was always the ones who underestimated me. I, I was just used to it, right? I, I was short. I'm African-American. I'm an only child. You know, I went down the block. You know, kids wanted to beat me up all the time because I was a little short, you know, kid, right? Right. But they forgot no that. No bigger siblings. To, yeah, yeah, exactly. But they forgot that, you know, uh, you know, the big guys around the area, they, they just really liked my style and my dress, and they would come and beat the kids up for me. <laughs> I mean, I just, you know, so I, I've just always been a person, I, I, you know, that I expect it. I expect to always hear no. And I still hear no today. You know, so it's fine. Hmm. What are you learning now? Is there an area where you're looking where you're like, I really want to get smarter about that? Yeah. Um, the never-ending never challenge of um, work and, um, you know, personal life against work, right? Yeah. The never-ending challenge of that. The challenge of how to maximize your time during the day uh, and the evening and get as utilize technology and the ability to spread things around the world but not have to build a massive, massive machine. I don't want 1,000, 2,000, 10,000 people working for me. I, had, I got up to two or 300 people and I became a shrink at that, at that point, right? <laughs> um, learning how to master uh, my health. Um, because uh, you know, I, I went through a, a, a small scare where I found out I had stage two cancer. It's all out of me at the at the moment, and I'm, that was you know, a small scare in, in my thyroid. Yeah, my, uh, yeah, yeah. There, but you know, you were, it was a small scare. I mean, <laughs> go back. I'll tell you why it was a small scare I would, because yeah. I, I because after they took out half my thyroid, they found out later. So I wasn't the one going oh. into something knowing it, right? So you knew that there was some issue, but you didn't know what it was. It was a bump. Then it, was, it was a lump on my thing, on my, on my thyroid. So um, mass, learning how to master the health. Because, you know, in our world, yeah. um, 
you know, in our world, how, how do you do that, right? Stress is the number one cause of, of a lot of, uh, you know, uh, diseases and problems and challenges. We sleep off hours. We're on planes and trains and automobiles all night. We do have the access to any kind of drink, food, and anything you ever want. Uh, we have limited time for exercising and things of that nature. And being on the road, you know, food is not readily available. That's clean food that's healthy all the time. You also now missing your, your mother, your daughter, your kids, your wife. And the company, you still have to run it because if you're not there every day, they're not going to run it just like you. So how do you handle all those things on a daily basis? But more importantly, how do you handle your health? Because at the end of the day, if you don't have your health, you can't handle any of that, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, listen, we have some... We're all getting older, and our, our ticker may not be working the way we like it no matter what. So it's always, that is the thing that I con I'm concentrating on, uh, along with, again, how to expand in the right ways without taking on a heavy, heavy workforce. So basically, more profit, work less. Okay, let's talk about rise and grind. So, you know, so, so when, I, when I'm talking about trying to maximize you know, your entire time and life and whatever, it's my new book, Rise and Grind. You know, when I came out with The Power of Broke, I... I you know, I, I went out and told everybody, hey, you don't need money to make money, and I'm going to show you 16 or 18 other subjects, everybody from Kevin Plank to Under Armour to, to whoever else, uh, you know, to, to all these amazing people in different categories. But now uh, I just, I, I figured that I told you the theory. It's almost like, here's how you cook. Now I'm going to cook you a steak. Now I'm going to show you the exact way to cook 16 different favorite dishes, and I want you to find uh, you know, what's right for you. So I would, I would go out now, and I would study subjects like Catherine Zeta-Jones and Carlos Santana, uh, Wendy Williams, and not all people just in entertainment. I, I have Kyle Maynard, the kid who was uh, born with no arms and no legs, and he climbed Mount Kilimanjaro with no prosthetics, army climb, the entire thing. Yeah. And what I asked all these subjects were, what is the first things you do the first 90 minutes of your day? What are the things you do the last 90 minutes of the day? What did you do when you were 20 that you still do today? What did you do when you were 20 that you forgot and you had to come back to because you found yourself lost? Yeah. Um, and, and you would see in there dozens, maybe even hundreds of things that everybody had in common in a different way. Uh, you would notice that. I happen to do what I call goal setting that I learned from uh, Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. I do that every morning and every night. Carlos Santana talks to the universe. Uh, Russell Simmons does yoga. Um, uh, you know, Rick Ross says he sits on the toilet bowl and smokes a cigar and, 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 and sees his visions. It's meditating, it's praying, it's whatever the case is, but it's setting. It's setting offense. It's visualizing goals that they do. Um, I used... You know, prior to writing the book, I would work out at night. You know what? I have so much coffee in the morning. I'm going to work out at night. Nobody's going to call me. I'm going to relax, right? And I don't have time during the day to work out. I found that the most successful people in that book all worked out in the daytime. I started working out in the daytime. You know what it did? It made me more productive during the day because I had the adrenaline running. And I looked at a month, and I said to myself, wait a minute. I've accomplished more in a month because I took the two hours in the beginning of the day to work out. And right. I started to reset what I was doing. And I, then I said to myself, I was doing that when I was 18. I was doing that when I was 20. I was doing that in the FUBU days. So it's fascinating when you start showing people what the, the, the rise and grind is. See, we, I, I call rise 
our defense, I call grind our offense. We're mm -hmm. all going to rise every day. But how are you going to use the same exact 24 hours that I have? And how come your 24 hours are used more efficiently than mine? Or mine more efficiently than yours? Why right. are you there? We both have the same 24 hours. So that's what I put together. Um, and I want people to look at this thing and either go, I'm doing this. Oh, I'm not doing this. Wait a minute. I should try this. If it doesn't work out, I'll try this one. I'll try this one. I'll try this one. I remember when I used to do this. Um, and, and, I, I, and it's a very intimate look at what people do on a daily basis who I think are successful from all walks of life. So exceptional people and the habits. The habits that, that exceptional do people do on a daily basis every single day. Fantastic. Looking forward to that. Thank you. My thanks to Damon John. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Please do leave a review if you enjoyed this. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube, F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com slash YouTube. Follow me, John Fort, on Facebook and Twitter. There you'll see video from some of these interviews, and you can say hi to me live, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. That also airs on Apple TV, Amazon Fire TV, Roku, you name it. There I'll tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Just go to YouTube and search for Fort Knox or go to Facebook and search for John Fort. Twitter, same thing. You'll figure out what to do from there. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or FortKnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.